Welcome to episode 79 of FRT. I'm Brad Carr in Washington. It feels a bit like we're drawing breath here at the moment in the world of digital finance. After a huge couple of weeks with the IIF annual membership meeting, the IMF and World Bank annual meetings, DC FinTech Week, and of course a big package of FSB reports and much more. Although I guess we're not drawing breath for long in this city as things roll eminently into the US election. But we are going to come up for a bit of fresh air today and we're going to talk about sandboxes. Our guest today is across town here in Washington, Ivo Yenik, Financial Sector Specialist at CGAP, a consultative group to assist the poor. Ivo has led CGAP's work on regulatory innovation, looking at digital banks, crowdfunding and regulatory sandboxes, and capacity building for policymakers on digital finance topics across the globe. One of the things we'll discuss here today is Evo's most recent CGAP report, How to Build a Regulatory Sandbox, a Practical Guide for Policymakers. Evo, thanks for joining us and welcome to FRT. Thank you very much, Brett. Great to be here and thanks IF for inviting me. Absolutely, our pleasure. And we're going to discuss your report on sandboxes. Um, I'm probably going to lead the witness a little bit by asking you about a couple of things that I thought stood out in the report, but I hope you'll correct me or steer me if I'm missing any of the top takeaways. But before we get into the report, could we perhaps talk a little bit about CGAP and perhaps just give that context for anyone who, who might not be familiar? Could you tell us a bit about CGAP and, and how that fits as part of the broader World Bank Group? Well, CGAP is an organization that focuses on advancing financial inclusion. We're effectively trying to help 1.7 billion adults who are currently excluded for the former financial sector to access formal financial services. And why do we do that? Mostly because we believe, and there is a growing amount of evidence, uh, that when people have access to formal financial services, they can improve their lives. They can seize opportunities. They can build resilience against shocks. And in the long term, they can improve their livelihoods and, and, and live better lives. Um, you can think of you know, practical examples like people being able to save money for education of their children, for example, or using insurance to uh, build resilience against uh, shocks coming from health issues or health costs. Um, you can think of people borrowing money to buy fertilizers or, or, or seeds. So these are some, some examples how financial inclusion may improve uh, lives of people and why CGAP is working on that topic. Um, I should also know that many of the people who are currently in that 1.7 billion number are obviously women. So making sure that uh, there is no gender gap between men and women in access to formal financial services is also part of, of our mission. And how we do that, uh, we, we experiment with new ideas. We're looking for um, barriers to financial inclusion, how to overcome them, what are solutions to, to address those barriers. We very often try to look um, for cutting edge, new, innovative, creative ways to overcome those barriers um, through research, through on the ground experimentation. And then uh, we try to bring attention of the wider financial inclusion and development community to some of these barriers and also solutions and maybe scale those solutions across the markets uh, and advance financial inclusion. But you also ask about um, our role within the World Bank so we are uh, effectively hosted by the World Bank uh, here in Washington, D.C. But at the same time, World Bank is one out of more than 30 members of CGAP who are funding our work and who are sort of contributing to, to the governance of, of our organization. 
Eva, when you highlight a number of those really important aspirations in financial inclusion, and that's a, a very noble and very important cause that we at the IF very much support, I want to continue with that theme in just a second. But if I could just pause and, and reflect a little further on CGAP in the current context of the, the COVID pandemic. And the pandemic, I think, probably hits poor people the hardest. Uh, it's, it's people that are in the jobs that are at least uh, adaptable to the work from home environment. Uh, people where the migrant workers and their remittance flows have been disrupted, some of the emerging market countries that are reliant on, on tourism income that has suddenly dried up or, or seasonal industries. Does the COVID-19 pandemic mean that this is a more urgent time than ever at CGAP? It is, and thanks for that question, because it is a very important question and very specific times, obviously, not only for CGAP, but for everybody. When, when the pandemic hit uh, in the spring, we really faced a very difficult decision whether we should continue our work program and work agenda as we envisioned it in 2019 or whether we need to make adjustments and maybe pivot because of the pandemic and what was happening and as you rightly pointed out the way it has been affecting the the poor people and so in our discussions we kind of decided to go back to the roots in, in many ways, because when CGAP was established uh, more than 25 years ago, the key focus was on microfinance as, uh, I would say, the, the champion of financial inclusion, the champion uh, industry of serving poor people. And microfinance is in a very difficult situation as a result of the pandemic. So we thought and we decided to focus our attention to certain, to a to, to, to large degree actually, on helping microfinance industry to navigate through the crisis and um, cope with the crisis and maybe reemerge uh, stronger uh, than than before. And so a lot of our current activities uh, revolve around helping the microfinance. And it is partially also because microfinance still is industry that serves um, a large portion of poor uh, poor people in emerging markets. You know, we see increasing number of new players like fintech companies and um, a lot of innovation is happening in that space. But microfinance is almost like a cornerstone of, of financial inclusion. The very moderate estimates are that there are 140 million people who are uh, currently served by the microfinance institutions. So we've been working very busily on, on, on this topic. And if we can perhaps continue now with that financial inclusion theme, and it's uh, an important one I, I mentioned at the IIF, our focus, and uh, it was great during our recent IIF digital interchange. We heard from former Reserve Bank of India Governor Raju Rajan, and also from the chairman of CIB Bank in Egypt, Hishan Izal Arab, who were both very passionate and had some, some great examples and use cases to talk about. But what do you see as some of the greatest opportunities in helping to promote financial inclusion? Well, if I had to single out one specific thing, I would answer its internet connection and access to smart devices, smartphones most likely, because I really believe that internet connection and having access to digital technology can bring us a long way, even in financial inclusion and most likely in other areas of development work. And this is not just you know me thinking something, but it's based on our experience with mobile money and digital financial services. Mobile money are one of the key factors that contributed to the fact that between 2011 and 2016, over 1 billion people got access to formal financial services. 
And again, many of them would get their access through uh, mobile phones and through mobile uh, mobile money. So I, I do think that digital financial services generally are quite essential for achieving the, the financial inclusion objectives. Now, if we unwind this topic or, or, or try to kind of uh, bring it to a, a specific concrete um, areas, then we'll probably talk about things around policy, things like ID, EKYC, things around infrastructure, instant payment systems, for instance, and also business models. We see a lot of development or a lot of progress in business models. So let me give you one example with uh, the topic of digital banking. We've been recently conducting research into new emerging business models in, in digital banking because our assumption is that while some of those financial inclusion champions that I mentioned before, microfinance institutions, mobile money operators, are really essential for financial inclusion. They are particularly good in extending access to formal financial services. And so, again, when you look at the number 1.2 billion people getting access, that's really a very impressive number. But the persistent challenge in financial inclusion is the usage of formal financial services. So people may have nominal access to formal financial services, but they don't necessarily use it. And that might be for a number of reasons, including that those services are not necessarily tailored for, for, for people and for what they need and how they envision using financial services. And again, this might be for a number of reasons, but some of those financial inclusion champions that I mentioned, they also face limitations in terms of how they are regulated and what their business model is like. So when you think of mobile money, for instance, you know, it's effectively a set of relatively straightforward payment services that those mobile money uh, providers offer. But when we talk about seizing economic opportunities and building resilience, we also talk about investment products, savings, insurance products, and others. And so our hypothesis is that digital banks and some of those new emerging business models in digital banking can help to overcome this challenge of low usage and serve poor people profitably with a wider and, and perhaps better tailored set of financial services and products. A number of great points you make there. And, and you know, I, I like the point in particular about the business models. It's something I, I mentioned Hisham at CIB, and, and he's really passionate about the fact that you know, they needed to switch the mindset from branches to devices. And that when they did so, uh, you suddenly changed the, the economics of serving customers. The people who were not profitable to reach, perhaps in more remote uh, communities, under a, a, something that was geared around the bricks and mortar infrastructure of a branch network, suddenly do become very profitable customers for the bank when you're thinking in a, a mobile uh, and a device-driven mindset. But you, you need to make that mindset shift, uh, and he illustrated where that's not necessarily easy. But also it has to be underpinned by the point of where you started about internet connectivity, and you need to have the supporting telecommunications infrastructure it's not only about financial inclusion, it's actually about the risk of financial exclusion as well, isn't it? And I, I know the, the Swedes and the Canadians uh, have been you know, very vocal about the fact that the people in the, the far north remote communities of their countries don't necessarily have the level of broadband or Wi-Fi connectivity that we might take for granted. And you need to make sure that you're not leaving any of those people behind with some of these initiatives also. Absolutely right. Uh, the risk of financial exclusion and what many people call digital divide 
is definitely real. And it's definitely something that concerns SIGA. We have been doing research into what is affecting this digital divide, who are the people who get access to uh, devices and who are online. Uh, we are about to launch research into what we call newly digital, people who recently basically became part of a digital world and are now increasingly well positioned to participate in digital economy. But we should not be forgetting that there are still people who face that that barrier or that 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 gap in access to smartphones, in access to data. In many countries in which we operate, data is extremely expensive, and uh, especially proportionally to the, the income levels. And so people use data only occasionally, only for very specific tasks, which obviously limits also the data trails that they generated that can be potentially used for uh, expanding their access to, to financial services. So that's, that's definitely um, a very important point and a point that also leads to a bigger infrastructural uh, challenges that are perhaps out of the scope of, of SIGA, but we are aware of them and we try to uh, keep them in mind as we work on financial inclusion challenges. And those infrastructural challenges I'm talking about is, you know, the electric grid, for example, not only access to smartphones, but even access to electricity to charge your smartphone. Absolutely. And again, very much a, a shared concern. The the chairman of our steering committee on digital finance, uh, Carlos Torres Villa of BBVA, has talked about the criticality of making sure that we don't leave the most vulnerable behind. Um, so it's a, a great point you, you illustrate there. I'd, I'd love to talk about this sort of stuff all day, to be honest, but we probably need to move on and talk about sandboxes and your, your most recent report. Um, and so perhaps uh, before we jump into the substance of the report, maybe could you lay out for us the landscape as you see it in terms of the global maturity of sandboxes and perhaps what prompted you to write this report? So when we look around the world these days, uh, we would see something around 60 uh, sandboxes worldwide, most of which would be probably early stages of development, so being developed or being launched very recently. Um, my colleagues from the World Bank actually mapped out those sandboxes around the world, and the number is constantly increasing. Uh, which is which is really fascinating, and I think it speaks to the demand for a tool, a regulatory tool that would help regulators to cope with a very dynamic space of financial innovation. But let me first step, uh, take a step back, and and uh, maybe just say a couple of words about how we understand sandbox and, and how we define sandbox, because I find that um, sometimes people envision different things uh, when you say regulatory sandbox, and um, that also means they have different expectations of what Sandbox is and can do. In our initial paper on regulatory sandboxes and financial inclusion three years ago, we sort of focused on how sandboxes look like, and we moved over the time from that definition to kind of explain what sandboxes are. So to my understanding or to, to our understanding, regulatory sandbox is an environment for life testing uh, of innovation that is set up by financial sector regulators and that allows regulators to really stretch their comfort zone when it comes to innovation. It allows them to, I would say, almost touch and experience innovation as it interacts with the marketplace and as customers interact with the innovation. And this is very important because it helps regulators to collect fairly quickly important insights and evidence about 
the risks involved in the innovation, the benefits, and all of this evidence and insights are then helping regulators to make a decision about how that innovation should be regulated or should be treated from, from the regulatory point of view. Um, one, one point that I, I like to make is also that maybe actually you asked why we wrote this report and, and um, the answer is that we realize there's a connection between regulatory sandboxes and financial inclusion and that, that connection really is in what I talked about uh, when I mentioned digital financial services and the importance of innovation. We believe that innovation is essential for the success of financial inclusion efforts. And a lot of the financial inclusion breakthroughs came from innovation, you know, mobile money being one example. And so we see regulatory sandbox as one tool that can help regulators to address or harness innovation that may eventually turn out to be beneficial to, to financial inclusion. And so that's one of the reasons why we decided to study this topic and, and, and write the report eventually. Um, that was also a personal reason. I, I used to work as a compliance officer, so I could very well empathize with innovators approaching regulators with, with innovation and not necessarily getting the guidance that is sometimes needed when it comes to you know, navigating through the legal and regulatory framework. So when I heard about regulators actually being open to the idea of engaging in dialogue and even allowing innovation, innovators to test solution and, and help them to find a, a, a way to comply with uh, regulation, I was very, very intrigued. I like the way you highlight where sandboxes are, are one particular potential tool that regulators have available. And I, I like one thing that stood out for me as a feature in the report is you know, where you, you put it in that wider context. And I, I really liked it. There's a great framework. It's a kind of a decision tree diagram you have. For anybody that's listening to this whilst also following along in the report, uh, you really want to look at figure one on page five. Uh, and in this, you, you, you lay out the, I guess, the matching of sandboxes, all these other tools, to the particular type of barrier to innovation that's lurking there that you might be trying to overcome. So I wonder if you can talk a bit through about that, that matching of tools to the, to the particular barriers you're trying to solve. We've been working on, on regulatory sandboxes, doing research, interviewing a lot of people, but also working with regulators. And at some point, we realized that many regulators struggle with the essential question of what is the sandbox good for? When is it a suitable solution? And um, why, should I, why should I implement it? And we thought, well, you know, but this is a key question to really ask before you even decide whether you want to have a sandbox and, and what kind of sandbox you want. And so we took those questions that we would typically hear regulators asking, and we try to structure them in this decision process or decision three, which sort of proceeds uh, across three steps. And those three steps are effectively trying to answer A, what it is that you're trying to solve what is your issue or what is your work problem that you want to address as a regulator sort of objective of the regulatory sandbox uh initiative and then when, once you answer that question the second point is okay what is the root cause of this problem because it's really important to identify 
you know, what is driving this specific issue or, or, or challenge in your jurisdiction to be able to identify potential solutions. So the second step is trying to find answer to that question. And then the third question is very simple. Do you need a life testing environment to be able to address that root cause and to advance the, the objective that you identify at the very beginning. And this is basically what the decision process or decision tree does. It walks regulators through, through this um, decision-making process effectively, um, building it on frequently asked questions and frequently answered answers. And if you look at it, uh, I think many of the, the listeners who are looking at the decision tree, what probably strikes them is that not that many answers and not that many lines or sort of decision-making chains lead to regulatory sandbox, actually. There are many other options in the decision tree that we're trying to highlight and trying to point regulators towards because we believe that regulatory sandbox is an important tool, but it's an important tool that um, only fits a relatively narrowly defined use cases, very important use cases, those I, I would say crucial use cases, but relatively narrowly defined. And in many other instances, there might be other tools that are available and that might be easier to implement for regulators than uh, regulatory sandboxes. And we highlight some of them, you know, other innovation facilitators such as fintech uh, fintech offices or a regulatory change. Sometimes what it really takes is to change the laws or regulations, and you may not need a life testing for that. So this is how the decision tree hopefully will help regulators to be more intentional about regulatory sandbox and its design and implementation. I think it's a really impressive framework, and I really like the way you've laid those issues out. You, know, you sometimes hear, if I can call them sandbox evangelists, who uh, love to promote the the concept uh, in all circumstances. You hear others who are very skeptical about sandboxes and who don't don't see the value of them given the experience set they have. And I think you managed to to thread the needle very effectively there in terms of the the cases where it it is or perhaps is not most appropriate. I, I want to return to that point in a moment, but perhaps if I can continue with one of the other things that I think really stood out for me um, in the uh, in the report. You also set out a series of the key design elements for sandboxes. And I was wondering if you could walk us through some of those. Yes. So when you look at the sandboxes that are out there, and I already mentioned that you know there's a decent amount of, of sandboxes, around 60, uh, that are operating or about to operate around the world. When you look at them from the 30,000 feet view, they all look very similarly. They have, they, most of them share five, design elements. It's the eligibility, who can test in a sandbox, uh, the governance, how the sandbox is structured and how it operates, the timing, when you can apply to be admitted to a sandbox, but also how long you can test, uh, it's test restrictions and safeguards to minimize potential harm of testing unsafe innovation, and it's exit scenario. So we, we see those five elements pretty much in every sandbox. But the tricky part is that when you analyze uh, individual sandboxes in more detail, you realize that there are multiple design choices under each of those elements. So for example, you can allow only licensed institutions to test your uh, to test in your sandbox. Or you can allow a fintech startups or a combination of the two, or you can even allow individuals uh, to test in the sandbox theoretically. And so we were thinking how to 
really make those design elements and design choice design choices matched with what regulators experience in their own uh, jurisdictions and in their own circumstances. And so we came up with sort of three factors or circumstances, if you will. We call them actually threshold constraints that, in our view, impact the design choices. And, and those three uh, threshold constraints are applicable legal framework, market, market conditions, and the capacity of the regulator. And, and, and then we try to match those design choices with the threshold constraints and basically say, if in your jurisdiction experience, you know, this set of, of circumstances, then we believe that this kind of uh, sandbox is most appropriate for you, or this, this design uh, of sandbox is most appropriate for you. So in other words, we believe that um, Specific circumstances lead to specific design choices when it comes to designing uh, a sandbox. We believe that getting that right is important for the success of a sandbox, and we try to come up with a framework which would help regulators to analyze what are the threshold constraints in their jurisdiction and how they can match it with the right design choices. And if we can continue with the uh, part of that theme, you know, I, I also interested in where you talk a bit about some of the the exit options, um, which again I, I think vary significantly by the individual circumstance to to the point you were just making. But a lot of the popular discussion about sandbox sandboxes seems to gravitate to an assumption of success and to a competitive advantage that emerges for a new innovator, and that's probably where some of the the passion debate from some circles comes from. But I thought your report very effectively lays out the quite extensive range of scenarios uh, of what an exit from a sandbox might look like and, and how it's really not that simple. Again, for anyone following, um, page 19 has got a great great piece in figure five and table three depicting this. But Eva, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know, the, some of those, those exit scenarios or exit options. In the technical guide, we try to come up with all possible exit scenarios that we've seen and we could think of because uh, I believe that it's very important for the regulators to understand from the very beginning, even before they, they launch a sandbox, what those exit scenarios are and what they mean for them and for their jurisdiction. And Brett, you rightly pointed out that people obviously focus on the success scenarios where everything goes well and the successful test is accomplished and now the the sandbox firm is about to exit but even that gets tricky because it may be the case and we pointed out in in uh, in the technical guide that the regulator may not be really ready for innovation that is not covered by existing regulatory framework and so it's important to know even if the test is successful what is going to happen if that innovation cannot be readily licensed and regulated because the framework is simply missing, right? Um, and in our in our schematic explanation of those scenarios, we say that sometimes you would need a regulatory or legislative change. And so some regulators that I talked to um, intentionally extended the testing period to over a year. I think the, the longest one that I'm aware of is probably around three years because they said, well, you know, in case we need to do a legislative change to accommodate this innovation, we will need, you know, quite some time. And so we can extend the testing period to, to make the regulatory change. So 
it is really important to understand the, what the exit scenarios are. And if some of them are simply not possible in some jurisdiction, then again, going back to the design question, limit the design of the sandbox to perhaps rule out some of those scenarios that are simply not, not possible. Eva, it's really fascinating, and I really like how you've mapped that out. Um, for those reading through the report, there's some great use cases to look at. One that catches my eye is about the, the Bank of Thailand uh, KYC piece, which with the work that we've been focusing on, on the interoperability of digital identity systems, is definitely one that I want to learn up more about. But if I can step back to, to a moment ago, we talked a bit about the the circumstances of where sandboxes do or do not most make sense or are the most appropriate fit. And I want to get your view, Evo, in, in terms of, of sandboxes and their applicability with particular legal systems. And I'm recalling a bit here, uh, back in the days when we could actually travel, uh, I was at the Salzburg Global Seminar a couple of years ago, and we had a really fascinating discussion led by the head of one of the major American agencies who made the observation that sandboxes perhaps are a better fit in you know, common law jurisdictions you know, like the US and the UK perhaps and less so in, in civil law or Napoleonic Code jurisdictions. And I was just interested whether you might have a view on that. It is a fascinating question, and uh, particularly for lawyers, I think that's a, it's a very interesting question. And to be honest, we started our research uh, three years ago with the assumption that resonates you know, with, the, with the quote that you mentioned. We assumed that uh, there will be more sandboxes in common law countries. And I guess it was based on the assumption that, that common law countries um, allow for more flexibility, more regulatory discretion, so a tool like a sandbox can be implemented with more ease. Uh, but over the time, um, I realized that uh, it's not necessarily the case. And um, we, for instance, ran a survey where we asked regulators you know, a set of questions, and we also asked them about their legal system. and it seemed like the regulatory sandboxes are equally spread across legal systems, regardless of whether they are civil or, or common law. And also, when you look at the map of where sandboxes are now, you know, these over 60 sandboxes, I, I don't see a strong bias towards common law countries. It is true, though, that um, civil law countries might have taken a little longer to catch up with the trend and to figure out how to implement a sandbox or sandbox-like initiative in their jurisdiction because sometimes it would require a change of the code so legislative change or or regulatory change which obviously requires a little more time but uh, that is probably the the only different uh, difference that i would say uh, however a related question is basically on enabling factors whether they are factors that make a country a, a more suited for a regulatory sandbox solution, or if you will, if there are prerequisites for a regulatory sandbox. And there I would say that it, it revolved, the answer revolves around the threshold constraints that I, I, I mentioned. Um, you know, how flexible and, um, um, yeah, how flexible basically is your uh, legal and regulatory framework? And it doesn't have to be necessarily common law versus civil law. Uh, how developed is your uh, market with innovations? You know, how many fintech startups, for example, operate in your market? And what is your capacity as a regulator to implement a regulatory sandbox or similar similar initiative? So these threshold constraints are perhaps altogether more important than the divide between uh, civil law and common law jurisdictions. And they kind of also relate to the question of 
you know, what are the prerequisites that make Sandbox a success uh, or, or uh, things that potentially lead to successful implementation of regulatory Sandbox. And, and there I would say, you know, in addition to sort of obvious ones, having a clearly defined objectives and, and well-defined design, um, two things are important, well-defined governance and processes and thing that I'd like to really emphasize, which is a strong stakeholder buy-in. And again, you know, it's not related much to how the idea of sandbox is communicated to the stakeholders and how stakeholders support that idea. And when I mention stakeholders, you know, it can be colleagues of regulators, it can be other regulatory agencies, because in many countries there are more regulators operating, obviously, and also the industry, how much the industry is on board with the sandbox idea. If we can perhaps conclude, uh, Evo, by looking at that from a specific angle, I suppose, if we could talk a bit about the, the GFIN, the Global Financial Innovation Network, which CGAP is, is part of, is one of the founding members, and which I think is part of the, the GFIN is, is very much about helping to promote a lot of that communication that you mentioned, the exchange of ideas across the public and private sectors around the world and, and improving a lot of the, the cross-border association and, and cooperation in particular. Um, I was wondering how you see the, the GFIN today. I, I guess we're probably at about the two-year anniversary. I think it was October of 2018 when the GFIN consultation closed. I guess it was formally ratified not long after. But how do you see it now and, and what do you think is ahead? Yeah, that's right. It's been already two years. I think the GFIN is a great initiative. I think it's a great initiative that complements standard setting bodies, international organizations. It has a lot of value to offer. It is basically a network of financial sector regulators, international organizations, and other stakeholders interested in harnessing innovation to modernize financial markets. And as you rightly pointed out, it actually started with this very strong idea of enabling cross-border testing. It was actually initially labeled as a global sandbox because the idea was to create a sandbox that would allow for simultaneous testing of innovation across multiple countries. And I think intuitively that idea was very appealing and um, sounded really great, not only to regulators, but I, I guess also to the industry because many players and, and fintech startups want to scale up their business by operating across multiple markets. And so GFIN launched a pilot program, the pilot cross-border testing, which was great because it allowed us to also realize that there are many challenges and barriers on the way that we will need to address before we get to the sort of ideal scenario of very streamlined cross-border testing. We took a stock of those challenges and barriers. Uh, we actually wrote a summary report which, which summarized them and is available on the GFIN website. And we try to make tweaks and uh, we'll be relaunching the, the cross-border testing, which I think is really great. But I'd like to emphasize a, another function of GFIN, which I think is very important, probably equally important to cross-border testing, and that is sharing experiences and, and ideas and insights around the technology being used to enhance and advance regulation and supervision of the financial sector, so RecTech and SubTech, basically. It's a very cool, potentially very interesting area that can be useful to many regulators and supervisors, but it's so novel that for, for many regulators, there's a shortage of information and, and understanding of what RecTech is and what it can do. And so GFIN has created this platform for members to exchange 
recommendations about existing solutions, to brainstorm about potentially new solutions, share experiences with implementing technology for regulation and supervision. And I think that's that's really great and very, very valuable. And so is generally exchanging insights and experiences about the recent trends because there's so much happening in that space and there's so much pressure on regulators that you know having a platform for this kind of peer learning and exchange is, is very useful. Absolutely agree and I, I share your enthusiasm for the GFIN. I'm a big supporter of it uh, and indeed at the IF uh, when we submitted our comment letter as part of that consultation two years ago we were, were very much uh, indicating our support for it. Uh, we hosted Chris Woolard from the FCA actually for a, a roundtable uh, attached to the annual meetings two years ago, which was a, a great exchange. If there was one concern or, or uh, place where we'd like to see the GFIN do more, and, and which we called out in our comment letter, it's that we'd like to see more agencies be part of it. I think it was a founding group of 12, and it, and it has grown since then. Um, but I'd like to see it grow further, and I'd like to see more of the prudential regulators join it, as well as the securities and consumer protection regulators who have probably been the, the bigger um, share of, of those that kicked it off. How do you see the, the membership or composition of the GFIN? Uh, and do you think it's something that we collectively, private and public sector, need to do more to help it expand? You're absolutely right, Brett. The ultimate value of GFIN is proportionate to the size and diversity of its membership. And, and, and we definitely see that not only with the cross-border testing, but also the other work streams. And I'm glad to say that the membership is steadily growing and is actually steadily increasingly diverse. So, um, and I think that relates to the continuous interest in innovation facilitation and in things like like Sandbox, which is also why we published the guide and we actually published the whole collection of knowledge products on our website at Concern Innovation Facilitators. Um, I think the membership will grow when people clearly see the value in GFIN. And that may happen, um, you know, related to the cross-boarding, to the successful accomplishment of cross-border testing. So I, I think just promoting the initiative and, and supporting it and, and uh, showcasing its value will help to get the attention and grow the membership over time. Well, Ivo, thank you for joining us. So I've been making notes furiously through our conversation. I was going to share a few of my key takeaways, because I've, but I've probably got too many to mention them all. Um, I really liked where you started when we were discussing financial inclusion, where you emphasised the importance of the internet connection uh, as a basis for promoting inclusion. Not only having the connection, but I think having it at a reasonable and accessible price and the, the cost of data plans where those in some places could be a deterrent for actual usage and, and that that may impede the ability to bring up the, to build up the data sets necessary to enable some of these great innovations. I think it's a really important point that we need to, to reflect on and, and do more on. Um, as we've talked through about sandboxes, um, and it is a, uh, a concept that is not always understood. I, I like the way you described it as an environment for live testing that helps to stretch regulators out of their comfort zone and, uh, and enabling regulators and others, I think, to, to quickly learn and gain insights about where the risk uh, may in fact lurk. You know, I've often made the comment across a range of areas of financial innovation that I've been really struck how regulators are always anxious to learn more. Uh, and I think this is a, a great example of where it can be a tool to, to help enable that. Uh, but equally, I, I like the fact that you stress that it's only one of several tools available. Uh, and indeed, as we look at the individual use case, we need to consider whether the sandbox is the right fit versus some of the other tools that are available. 
as well as things like how to design the sandbox, how you take in on account of the, the five key elements that you highlighted, and also things like what will be the, the right exit scenario. Um, like the prerequisites that you mentioned, and, and in particular the emphasis on ensuring that the, you, you have the strong stakeholder buy-in uh, and how well the activity and the objectives are communicated and supported. And lastly, the GFIN. Um, I totally agree. It's, it's a great initiative for helping to promote the understanding uh, of RegTech in particular, helping to promote some of that, that learning activity um, uh, across uh, regulators and others, and, and in particular that sharing across borders. Uh, out of the IIF annual membership meeting uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was certainly recurring through a lot of our sessions was this emphasis on cross-border connectivity and enabling a lot of that, that cross-border uh, information flows and, and learning, and this is just another lens to, to that. But also your point on the GFIN that its ultimate value is directly proportionate to the participation, and it's, it's great to see that it is steadily growing, and we hope that it continues to do so. So, Ivo, thank you for, for sharing those insights uh, with us. You've been very generous with your time, and uh, it's been a, a fantastic for me to, to hear of all the, uh, the great work that's been happening in this space. Thank you for joining us. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And looking ahead on FRT, we've got a few things that I want to highlight. Uh, I'm going to team up again with Professor Chris Brummer of Georgetown University once again to summarise the very hectic time that I described in the digital finance policy world from across the IIF and IMF and World Bank annual meetings, the G20 finance ministers meetings, the series of the FSB, CPMI and, and ECB publications, among others, and of course, DC FinTech Week. Uh, Chris and I did this around about this time a year ago. It was episode 51 at that time, and we look forward to reprising that. We're also going to speak with Kitty Parry, founder and CEO of DeepView, on some of the emerging ethical issues with artificial intelligence. It's a topic that was very prominent in the IF annual membership meeting and also in FinTech Week. Um, I'm going to be hosting a session on that this week, actually, uh, with the European Banking Authority as well. So it really is getting a lot of focus right at the moment. It's going to be great to talk about that with Kitty. And on a related note, we're also going to debrief the IIF Machine Learning Model Governance Survey, which has some fascinating insights on how banks and insurers are handling the controls and the support of those models from our survey of 66 firms around the world. And that includes some really interesting stuff on the intersection of responsibilities across the risk function and the chief data officer within an organisation, which was something that Dean Finance CRO Torsten Kleinbuning put on our radar recently on episode 71. So thanks for joining us today and please join us again for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for listening on FRT.